would invite you to take your Bibles or turn in the bulletin uh, to our scripture passage uh, that we'll be looking at. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you uh, didn't receive the email that I send out on Fridays to our church family, then just uh, I'll tell you what I told them on Friday, that we are moving into a very challenging part of this book with this chapter and the next chapter and the chapter after that. So we get into some of the darkness in David's life. And I'm going to read today all 27 of these verses of chapter 11, and we'll look and see what we can learn from it. As I'm reading this to you, it's probably, at least if you're a churched person, if you're someone who's been around the church for a while, then it's probably somewhat of a familiar story. But I want to encourage you as I'm reading it to you uh, to look for a few different things. One is, notice the pace that the narrator is telling us the story. Uh, chapters 1 through 10 of Second Samuel have lots of action and things are moving quickly. And we notice as we come now to chapter 11, things slow down. And the narrator is inviting us to be reflective as we read these words. Even as the events of David's fall in particular happen very quickly, but the, narr- the narrator's uh, giving us the story slows things down a good bit. I want you also to notice that there is not a lot of explanation given to us, especially about Bathsheba. We don't know what she was thinking. We don't know what was in her mind. We don't know what her motivation might have been. And I think the reason for this is because God and the narrator want us to focus on David and David's sin and what we can learn from it. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to David, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, "Go down to your house and wash your feet." And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in, the pre- in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this difficult part of your word and we need your help as we do every time we look into it. We pray especially for that help today. Send the Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds. Father, teach us what you want to teach us from this part of your word. And help us, even as we feel the weight of sin, help us also to feel the freedom of the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell us about the grace that is ours through the work of our Savior. For it's in His name we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you were with us back uh, last month at some point, we were covering 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you'll remember if you were here that I asked you when we came to that portion of God's Word, uh, I asked you to think about what you think of as the most important or maybe the most meaningful chapters of the Bible to you. And we thought about various chapters. We thought about Psalm 23. Uh, We thought about 1 Corinthians 13, the great uh, explanation of love uh, that God's people are to have for one another. Uh, We thought maybe about Revelation 21 and 22 that gives us this wonderful picture of the new heavens and the new earth that is ours. Uh, We thought of perhaps John 1 or uh, maybe Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation and the creation of Adam and Eve. 
I made the argument back then that I thought 2 Samuel 7 deserved to be right up there at the top in terms of one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. But even as I was asking that question back then, and even as I asked it again this morning, and you may have been thinking about various chapters, I bet none of you thought of 2 Samuel 11. But maybe that's not right. Maybe we should consider 2 Samuel 11 as one of the most important chapters for us to know and to understand. Not because the story is particularly edifying or encouraging or hopeful, but because it forces us to take a long, deep look at the reality of sin. The sin in our own lives, the sin in the world around us. And hopefully it also drives us to Jesus. That we would see in greater ways our need for Him and His grace, the provision of His grace abundantly. So today, as we go through this passage, I want us to think about three things. First of all, the surprise of David's sin. Second of all, the extent of David's sin. And then lastly, the importance of David's sin. So first of all, the surprise of David's sin. This this passage on some level should cause you uh, to be surprised, even a little bit shocked. The reason why you should be surprised and shocked is because who David was. Remember what we're told in Scripture about who David was. Now, we haven't gone through 1 Samuel together, but in 1 Samuel, in chapter 13, we read that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, I don't know all that that means, but I know that it's something very special, something important to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. That's who David was. Just a couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel 16, we read about the Lord anointing David through Samuel to be the king over all of Israel. He was the Lord's anointed to be the king. At the end of chapter 16, we read that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that time forward. We come to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we read this incredible chapter of how David is the king over all of Israel. And that he is the one whose kingdom and whose throne will be established forever. His will be an eternal kingdom. Back in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, David is called the shepherd of God's people. And just a few chapters before where we're looking today, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we saw that incredible story of David extending chesed, the, the steadfast love and faithfulness to the son of his friend Jonathan. And to the grandson of his arch enemy, Saul. Even when we come to the list of the kings of Judah, many of them are evaluated by the standard of whether they maintained the ways of their father, David. And when Jesus arrives, he closely connects himself with David. He is the son of David. He, he rules forever on the throne of David. So it should be surprising and shocking to us that a person like David would go to the extents that we read here in this chapter. John Calvin was preaching on this passage on August 12th of 1562 and he started the sermon this way. Now here is a story which should make your hair stand straight up on end whenever you think of it. That a servant of God as excellent as David should fall into such a serious and enormous sin that he could be judged the most morally lax and promiscuous person in the world. 
This passage should surprise and shock us, not only because of who David was, but because of the extent of David's sin. It's good for us to walk through the story and to notice uh, the, the extent that David went through, went, went to in his sin. I want you to notice, as I was mentioning earlier, that as we come to chapter 11, the pace that the narrator is telling the story at slows down. But I also want you to notice, as we look at these first five verses, how quickly David falls into sin. We don't know why, but we read in verse 1 that David decided that he would stay back in his palace in Jerusalem when it was time for the, the army to go out and have battles. It was springtime and that was the time that uh, kings would take their armies out and they would have battle. It was warmer weather. Uh, the crops were available to be able to feed the troops. The ground was more conducive to it. And so it was the time that kings would lead their armies out into battle. And we're not told why, but for some reason David decided he would stay back in the palace. Now, he had done that before. He had sent out the army, and then he would ride out later and finish the war. But that wasn't a very customary way of doing it. Most of the scholars believe that David was getting pretty comfortable as the king. And he was enjoying a sense of ease of life in the palace. And so uh, maybe he is simply brushing off responsibilities here. But regardless, he stayed home. And because he did, an opportunity to sin presented itself. After an afternoon nap, we're told, he decided to go up to the roof to take a walk. It was the time of the year where it was starting to get hot in the afternoons more and more. And so it was very common to go up on your roof and walk around and enjoy the cool breezes. And as he did that, we read in verses 2 and 3 that he saw a woman bathing. The palace would have been on higher ground, and so if you were on the roof of the palace, it would be very easy to look around and have a good vantage point of all of the houses around in the kingdom. And so there was David on the rooftop, walking around, enjoying the cool breeze, and as he does so, we're told that he saw a woman bathing. Now I want you to notice we're not told that Bathsheba was naked. She might have been. But also notice in verse 4 that we're told that she was going through a ceremonial cleansing, which would not have necessitated for her to be naked. We don't know. But regardless, David saw her and he thought that she was beautiful, very beautiful, the text says. Now, that would have been a great place for David to stop. It's not wrong to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. But David didn't stop. We read that he sent and inquired about the woman. He, he involved other people in what he was doing. He, he sent out servants to go find out who this young woman was. And he found out that the young woman was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Those were two of David's mighty men. Two of his, of his elite bodyguard troops. These were men that he knew. At that moment, David knew she was off limits. She was the wife of another man. Not just any other man. She was the wife and the daughter of men that he knew well. Of men who had pledged themselves, dedicated themselves to David's service. Now, if David had stopped at that point, it would have been better. 
But he doubled down and kept going. Verses 4 and 5, the events take place very quickly. David sent. David inquired. He sent messengers. He took her. And he laid with her. These are quick, short action verbs. It's emphasizing that David used his power and his authority to get what he wanted immediately. We read that after the one night stand, Bathsheba was sent back to her house. And then in verse 5, we get the only words that Bathsheba speaks in the story. In the Hebrew, it's only two words. I'm pregnant. With those words, David slides further down the deep and dark sinful road that he's on. When David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he had a big problem. He had committed a capital offense. Committing adultery with your neighbor's wife was a capital offense in the law of God. And he had to know that eventually it was going to be made public. Now, rather than stopping at that point and confessing his sin and coming clean and repenting, David's sin deepened even more. He came up with a cover plan. Bring home Uriah from the battlefield under the pretense of coming to the king to update him on how things are going. And then he gave Uriah the opportunity of going and seeing his wife Bathsheba, expecting that they would be intimate. Then everybody would have assumed that the baby was Uriah's. I want you to notice, he's not just giving Uriah an opportunity. If you look at verse 8, he specifically tells Uriah to go and to be with his wife. That euphemism there in verse 8. He even sent a gift to go along with them. Probably wine and food for them to enjoy. But a problem comes up in verse 9. Uriah didn't go to his house. He stayed at the palace with the servants. Now why would he do that? Well, there are two reasons. And Uriah gives us one of those reasons in verse 11. He says he can't imagine that he would go and enjoy food and drink and, and intimacy with his wife when his commander and his, his, his fellow soldiers are still on the battlefield. They're having to camp out in the fields. He said, how can I, how can I enjoy the, the comforts of life when I know that this is happening? He's showing us that he's a man of honor. But that wasn't the only reason why Uriah wouldn't go down to his house. The second reason is an even more serious reason. In the Mosaic Law, in the Word of God, it specifically forbids soldiers from having intimacy with their wives during battle time. For Uriah to go and to be with Bathsheba would be to break God's law. And notice, David tells him to do it. David was telling Uriah to disregard the law of God. Well, that plan didn't work. And so we read in verses 12 and 13 that David, although he could have stopped there, he could have said, you know, the Lord is obviously aware of what's going on. He's thwarting my plan. He could have stopped. He could have confessed his sin. He could have repented. He could have made things right. But no, he doubles down again and comes up with another plan. He tells Uriah to stay at the palace for another day. And then he gets Uriah drunk. He was hoping that Uriah would get drunk and lose some of his inhibitions, forget about his honor, forget about God's word, and stumble home and be with his wife. 
And notice David succeeded in getting him drunk. But the plan didn't work again. Uriah didn't go down to his house. He stayed again at the palace with the servants. The first two plans didn't work, but that didn't stop David once again. He could have stopped. He could have confessed. He could have repented. He could have done the right thing. But we see that things went from bad to worse. David determined to have Uriah killed. And so he wrote up a plan for Uriah to be killed in battle so that it could be covered up. And then did you see what David did? He sent Uriah back to the commander Joab to carry his own death certificate. And the plan worked. Almost as David had drawn it up. The setup for Uriah to be killed in battle was established. And indeed he was killed. But notice the text tells us that collateral damage took place as well. Other soldiers and servants were killed as the plot unfolded. Then we have this very interesting dialogue between Joab and the messenger and David. Once the deed had been done and Uriah had been killed, Joab gathered some messengers to take the information back to David. And and Joab knew that the king might get upset when he heard the word, when he heard the news, because not only had some soldiers, additional soldiers died as a result of the plot, but Joab hadn't carried it out exactly as David said. And so to prepare the messenger, he said to make sure that after you tell him what happened, that you make sure he hears clearly that Uriah the Hittite fell. Far from being upset, in verse 25, we read that David sent word back to Joab after he got word of what had happened. And essentially what he tells Joab is this. Don't worry about it. These things happen. It's war. People die. Don't let this burden you. David had succeeded in eliminating most of the threat of his sin becoming public. But there's one last part to his cover-up. We get that in verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. After Bathsheba went through the customary time of grieving for her dead husband, David, we're told again, sent. And he had Bathsheba brought to the palace, and she was made his wife. And I don't want you to think that David's just being honorable here. This is the final part of the cover-up. By bringing Bathsheba into the palace and marrying her, now nobody would suspect that the child was not legitimate. And David was making himself look good to the people. He was bringing the widow of one of his close elite bodyguards, one of even the men that he knew, one of his soldiers who had dedicated his life to David's service. He was bringing that widow into the palace to care for her. It's important for us to go through this story so that we can see the true extent of David's sins. Essentially, David broke at least eight of the Ten Commandments just in this one story. The only two that he may not have explicitly broken 
It's the second commandment about creating an image to worship. And the fourth commandment about breaking the Sabbath. Although, as I was talking to somebody in between the services, in a sense, he broke those as well. David lusted. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He stole something that was not his. He committed adultery. He lied. He murdered. And the God of his passion and self-preservation became more important to him than the one true God. One commentator pointed out that perhaps the, the most key word in this chapter... Is, is the word or the verb to take or took. David took Bathsheba. He tried to take Uriah's honor. He did take Uriah's life. And he took the life of others as well. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. David took and he took and he took again. And it reminds us back in 1 Samuel where God's people cried out because they looked around and they saw the nations and they said, we want to have a king like the nations do. And in a sense, what they were saying is, God, you're not our king. We want a, a human king. And so God sent the prophet Samuel to warn the people. You need to understand what you're asking for when you ask for a king. I want you to listen to Samuel's words, the Lord's words, through Samuel to the people. First Samuel chapter 8 says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. We come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we see the fulfillment of that promise of, of what Samuel had told the people of God. We see the fulfillment of the warning in David's sin. David has been given so much by the Lord and from the people and yet here he is taking and taking and taking some more. And as we start to understand the extent of David's sin, we can start to understand the importance of it. Now, it may seem a little weird to think of David's sin or this story as being important, but the Lord gave it to us in his word so that we would learn from it. That we would learn things like this. There but for the grace of God go I. Do you know that phrase? There but for the grace of God Go I. It's attributed to a 16th century English reformer named John Bradford. It's that idea that we look and we see something bad happening. We see somebody destroying their lives or destroying the lives of other and we, others. And we recognize that it's only God's grace and mercy that keeps me from going down that same path. 
That's one of the things that we need to learn as we think about this passage. There but for the grace of God go I. We are no better than David. The moment that you think, I could never do what David did, you've taken the first step toward it. How often do we follow at least some of David's steps? Maybe with other sins. But we follow the same steps. Because of ease and comfort of life, we let our guard down. We look and we see something that we want. That look lingers. And as it lingers, we begin to covet in our heart. And then because of our ability and our power and our position and our authority, we take something that we are not meant to have, indulge in it, and then go to great lengths to cover it up. The, the seeds of every sin are in each of our hearts. We are not beyond any of this or worse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Therefore let any, anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You think you couldn't fall this way? Take heed, Paul says, lest you fall. Don't you know that the temptations that we face are common? They are common to man. You've heard the common analogy of thinking of a little acorn. How small it is, how easy it is to overlook, and yet it grows into a massive oak tree or a forest of trees. All it needs is good soil, some water, and some nurturing such as David's lingering look and coveting and cultivating sinful desire. It's been said that perhaps one of the people who understands what it means to lean and to fight against sin better than anybody else was a man named John Owen. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. The, the mortification of sin. The, the fighting the, the killing of sin. And one of the things that he said in that book is that we, as God's people, must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It is so, is it easier to smash an acorn or to chop down a hundred year old oak tree, let alone a forest of trees? Think of all of the occasions that David had to kill sin and instead sin ended up bringing tremendous wreckage and even death. How are you doing with killing your sin? Is it something that's even important to you? James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. None of us are in a position of power and authority like King David was. But I would suggest to you this. Almost every person in this room, almost every person that is online, is in some position of power and authority. And if so, then you are tempted on a regular basis to self-pity. Nobody knows how hard my life is. Nobody knows how heavy the responsibilities are that I have to deal with. Nobody knows what it's like to be me. And when we get into that cycle of self-pity, 
and then an opportunity to sin comes along, it is so easy for us to rationalize, I deserve it. Kill that sin before it kills you. There but for the grace of God go I. We, we must learn that we are no better than David. But it is also there, the, the, is also the saying is, there but for the grace of God go I. And this story is also a picture to us of God's grace. David knew that he was in trouble when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant. He had to assume that eventually it would become public. And he had committed a capital offense. Leviticus 20 says that adulterers were to be put to death. David knew somebody was going to die. And he did everything he could to make sure it wouldn't be him. So instead, David decided that an innocent man, Uriah, would die in his place. As we're going to see next week, David's cover-up plan... And the death of Uriah didn't prevent the truth from coming out and from being known. And even though we read next week that David was found out and that God had said that the wages of sin is death, David didn't die because of this sin. Why not? Because as we are going to see, David turned back to the Lord and he put his hope in the God of redemption. He trusted for the Lord to take that sin and to cover it. He received grace because of the ancestor of his that would come a thousand years later, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. On the cross, the only true, truly innocent man was killed in order that he would pay for the sins of his people. So that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would not die, but that you would have life everlasting. You would experience the true and abundant grace of God. Jesus was the true and ultimate king who didn't just take and take and take, but gave and gave abundantly. And this grace is not just a grace for David. It is a grace for all who are in Christ, for all who put their hope and trust in the Lord. If you are a Christian, then the weight and the burden of your sin doesn't belong to you anymore. There is no need for you to carry it. If the king of Israel, the one who was so closely connected to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, could have his sins forgiven, then we know that we can too. That's one of the reasons why this chapter is important, because it teaches us that there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I think it's important for a second reason as well. It's important also because it makes us wrestle with the question, where was God? Why didn't God stop the evil? As we're going to see in the rest of 2 Samuel, the consequences of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11 will last for decades. And there are countless people that are impacted. But we can even just look at the evil that took place in this episode itself. In this one chapter, we read about the destruction of a family and multiple people being killed. Where was God? Why did he let it go? Why didn't he prevent it from happening? My answer is, ultimately, I don't know. Yes, we do know that God says he works all things for his glory and for the good of his will. But humanly speaking, we don't have any explanation here in the text that tells us 
why God decided not to to allow it and not to prevent it from happening. I know that some in our church family and some perhaps in this room, some online, have had a Lazarus moment in your lives. You know the story of Lazarus, when a good friend of Jesus died or was about to die, and so Jesus was told that he was about to die, he was sick. Jesus began to make his way to Lazarus. As he did, he went slowly. Lazarus ended up dying. When he finally arrived, Lazarus' sisters, also close friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha, both of them came to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you had been here, he would still be alive. Where were you, Jesus? You could have prevented this from happening. Some of us have had horrible and evil things happen to us, by us. We've all experienced, even in this past week and months, where we've been hearing the story about Ravi Zacharias. Why didn't God prevent it? Another story of a servant of the church exposing the sin, being exposed in his sin. We wonder why the Lord didn't prevent it, didn't stop it, didn't keep it, keep us from doing kinds of sins. Sometimes we may never be given the answer. Sometimes it may not come until much later. But here's what we do know from this story. Although David did his best to leave God out of this entire situation, God was there. How does the story end? We read in verse 27, the very end. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's actually not a very good translation. It's not strong enough. The Hebrew literally reads The Hebrew literally reads that the thing that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. God wasn't absent. And as we're going to find out next week, God was not silent. These words at the end of the passage are meant to contrast with the words that David sent back to Joab in verse 25. They're almost identical in the Hebrew. David was saying to Joab, Joab, don't let this thing that has been done be considered evil in your eyes. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And as we come to the end of the passage, we read it is a big deal. Because it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That means a few things for us. Number one, for those who have endured great evil in their lives, we have the promise that Justice will come eventually. A second thing it means for those who are not actively involved in killing their sin, it's a warning. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. You're not hiding anything from the Lord. But I also think it's an encouragement to us because we have the certain hope that God is not going to leave us in our sin forever. It may be through painful means, but God is going to get a hold of us if we are His children. In just a minute, we're going to finish our service with a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I learned a story about this hymn this past week. You can see in the hymn that it's written by a man named Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was born in 1735 in England. 
and he had a really hard life. His dad died when he was just a young boy, and so he ended up having to become uh, the provider for the family, going to work at a very young age. He had a very wealthy grandfather, but through circumstances I don't understand or know, he was actually disinherited from that grandfather, and so he never received much of an inheritance at all. He, he lived in his life in poverty. But when he was 20 years old, he had the opportunity to hear the evangelist George Whitfield preach God's word about the wrath of God that was coming on sinners. And Robinson believed the gospel and was converted. He even became a minister of the gospel. One of the churches that he served, the Lord blessed significantly a group from just a hundred people to over a thousand. Sometime during that time period, he also started writing some hymns. And he wrote this one, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing. Eventually, Robinson's life and ministry became very difficult. He himself became, became unstable and unhappy. He began to doubt the Christian beliefs and training that he had received earlier in his life. Jesus was no longer as important to him as he once had been. And some years later, he was traveling and he was in a stagecoach. And in that stagecoach was another passenger, somebody that he didn't know, a young lady. And as they were traveling along, she began to sing a song. Want to guess what it was? These are the words that she sang. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you hear the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, as you reflect on the darkness and the depravity of David's sin, of your own sin, don't stay where old man Robinson was later in his life. Instead, know the grace of the Lord. Know that he paid the debt that you could never pay. And let that grace and mercy of your Savior bind your wandering heart to Him. Confess your sin. Turn to Him again. Hear the promise of His perfect grace in the gospel. And then let that love and grace seal your heart for His courts above. And then get busy killing sin. Let's pray together. Father, it's a dangerous prayer for us to ask you to help us to feel the weight of sin. But we pray and ask that you would help us to feel the weight of sin, our own sin, this, the sin of this world against you. But even as we feel the weight of that sin, Father, we pray that you would help us to know the freedom that we have in the gospel. That as we meditate on our Savior, the greater David, 
life as we meditate on His love and mercy to us through the cross. Would you remove the burden and the weight of our sin? And instead, Father, motivate us that we would be people who go out and lean and fight against our sin, to kill our sin. We pray that you would do this again, ultimately for your glory, but especially for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.